Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I am Sean KB, and I'm very excited to be doing this episode that I've been planning to do for a really, really long time, and it's actually happening. Uh, we are here with my brother in arms, old friend of mine, Billy O'Connor. What's up, Billy? Hello, everyone. How you doing, Sean? And I'm here with a new friend and brother, uh, John Torme. What's up, John? Hey, what's up? We are doing an episode today about something near and dear to our hearts, which is wage labor. Uh, the three of us <laughs> are all in the uh, trades, uh, past, present, and future. Um, uh, Billy O'Connor here, uh, we met what, we, about 10, 12 years ago, would you say, at a, a Capital Reading Group? About 12 years ago. About 12 years ago. Um, and we actually worked together at a, a moving company briefly, too. I think you were in between jobs at that point, right? Right. We were working at Rabbit. Rabbit Movers. Uh, there's some really, really, there's some horror stories from that experience, but hey, we're here now. That's what's up. And uh, John Tormey uh, wrote an excellent piece for The Baffler, which is uh, how I um, online met him, about uh, the kind of, um, I don't know, the public perception of and the reality of what, quote unquote, white working class means in this country, because John is a member of the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way Workers um, up in the uh, uh, Boston area. That's right. Yep, that's right. So we're going to be talking a lot about John's excellent article in The Baffler called Known Assailants. Uh, everybody should read that and check that out. It's going to be kind of the grounding for our episode today. As we talk about construction, um, and we do a sort of worker's inquiry on ourselves, <laughs> in a sense, uh, you know, talk about what life on the job is like, how we got into it, what sort of political possibilities there are, and then I think most importantly, what sort of possibilities are there for the class struggle, which is very real within the building trades, but also a, a, a very peculiar and particular type of it, because oftentimes the unionism is very sort of narrow and provincial. So we, we can talk to about how we might break out of that and what the future for the trades uh, might be. So, uh, yeah, here we are. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. So on this uh, on this workers inquiry tip, you know we're going back to like Johnson Forrest, CLR James. Maybe in fact we're going all the way back to uh, the condition of the working classes classes in England by uh, Frederick Engels, who uh, you know he tried to understand you know what life on the job was like, um, how workers related to the means of production, how their actual lives on work, on the job and outside of work um, were, so that. Uh, as a Marxist, as a socialist, uh, he could understand and we could understand what working people go through uh, in this system that we call capitalism. So briefly for myself, uh, I, uh, I went to high school, which was a good idea. I was forced to do so. I didn't do that well, though. Um, in fact, I had intended to go to college, but because I did relatively poorly, um, when I barely squeaked out and I graduated, uh, my father said to me, if you're not going to go to college, you're going to do what I did when I got out of high school, and you're going to go work in a factory. And he thought this was going to scare me straight. So I worked uh, for a year and a half after college, after high school rather, in a uh, elastomer factory, building um, essentially custom parts for the military industrial complex, which was great. You know, a lot of Northrop Grumman and Raytheon and all that good stuff. Working the night shift in the elastomer plant. But eventually I did uh, go to college. I quit that horrific job because the night shift had turned me into a vampire. I was very, very, very uh, brutalized by that. And it was non-union. There wasn't really a future in it. And I bounced around for many, many years, did a lot of different jobs. Um, I, I 
think I've pretty much done everything somebody could possibly do, except maybe finance, you know? I've worked in uh, publishing, I've worked as a mover, I've worked in a supermarket, uh, I worked in uh, production, uh, I've done uh, restaurant work, I've done a, a ton of different things, copy editing. Um, and of course, too, I was teaching for uh, the Van Arsdale Center, which is a uh, State University of New York program where apprentices in the building trade, specifically the plumbers and the electricians, can get an education through the union, but also like in partnership with the State University of New York so that their apprenticeship training meant more than just simply learning how to you know, bend conduit or uh, learning how to be a steam fitter, but also had the elements of um, history and uh, literature and economics as well. So with that, I uh, you know, was getting my health insurance through that, but not making a lot of money. And I was looking at these kids who were you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, many of them, and they weren't making a lot as apprentices, but I looked and saw their rate, saw they're going to be making $60 an hour in the envelope someday. And I was kind of you know, in a, in a cul-de-sac, and I decided to join the trades. Some friends of mine had uh, broken in through the apprenticeship program in my local and uh, I applied and I went for it. And this was about six years ago now. So I made my way through the apprenticeship and I'm now a full member of my union and uh, working, as folks on Twitter might know, building a Home Depot right now, which is uh, very, very exciting. It's unfortunate because when I lose one of my tools, I can't just go to the Home Depot I'm building and buy it yet, but uh, someday. So that's sort of my history as a, as a working person. Uh, in this in my life and in this country so let's shoot it to billy what's what's your history i know you have a kind of varied history like myself yeah a little different i guess the going to high school part didn't end up exactly the same way for me <laughs> i couldn't wait to get out of high school i hated both years of it and i immediately joined the navy on my 17th birthday and i went to school in the navy for something that was irrelevant i never wanted to have anything to do with it they were grooming me for Navy intelligence, I guess, because oh, okay. I went to Catholic school. So I said, no, I don't want to do that. And uh, I just ended up tying knots and, you know, swinging around like Popeye on a little destroyer. Just the basic thing you, you would imagine a sailor being. And I did my national service and got out right on time. I had no ideas of being a lifer in the Navy. I just wanted to get in to do my service and get out. And then my family got me interested in the Iron Workers Union, basically by saying, here, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go down here and talk to this guy, and he's going to take care of you, and you're going to be in the Iron Workers Union. And you had, uh, you had family in the business, right? Right. In the industry? Many uncles. My, all of my uncles worked on the original World Trade Center. Oh, wow. And this is about five years later. Uh, it's going on seven or eight years later. And they were all still in the Iron Workers Union. Some of them went on to get into Conrail and other, other, other trade unions. But a heavy influence uh, on my life was the Iron Workers Union, even when I was a little kid. Mm. They all went out to Detroit to build auto factories in the 60s with the Iron Workers out there. And they all built a trade center and other things here in New York City. So I w went down, signed up with the union. I had been a machinery rigger and a cargo rigger in the Navy. So they sort of organized me right into the union. I didn't have to go through the traditional apprenticeship route. They just organized me instead of recruiting me as an apprentice. And it got a little slow in the 80s, and I, I went uh, back down home to Jersey where I grew up, and I started getting into computers for a while. Cool. I, 
got had a real aptitude for that because half of my family was in computers in the 60s and 70s and the other half was in the building trades mm. so i just had a knack for this stuff and i was uh just winging it all the time you know i had no formal education in computers not even one day but my father and my uncles and my cousins they knew everything about computers and they would just explain things to me and i could just basically stay one page ahead of the customer in the book and it sounded like i knew more than they did because i was on the page 11 and they were still on 10 right so i ended up teaching computer programming to the army corps of engineers scientists and engineers up in uh, natick massachusetts oh that's how i first got to massachusetts and i wrote out the whole dot-com boom there uh, the, and uh right about the turn of the century here i went back out to sea I got sick of the Y2K stuff. It was ridiculous, and I just couldn't take it anymore, and I had uh, just had enough. I went back out to sea for a little while, a couple of years, down in the Gulf of Mexico. Oh, yeah. Where they play a little fast and loose with the uh, safety regulations and such. I want to put a pin in that because you've told me your story of going down to Louisiana and what happened. I want you to tell that story later on because it's a tremendous story about – you know, unionism, but also anti-unionism uh, down in the South. But you went and you went on the ships down there uh, for for a few years, and then you made your way back to New York, and you went back to the ironworkers. I really only came back to New York because you know, I nine eleven. I, I just wanted to see. I can't. I can't believe that shit happened. And I let me. Just, I got to go take a look. And uh, I stayed, and I got back into the ironworkers after. This is after like a near fifteen year hiatus. Right. And you, uh, you still knew how to. Uh, to bend, yeah, to I can still steel. touch my toes. So I was all set, <laughs> yeah. fully qualified to be an iron worker. You still knew your way around tie wire, and I still knew how to tie knots, right. so I could be with the, you know, I could do most of the things that iron workers did anyway. So. All right, so that brings us to today. So, uh, John, why don't uh, why don't you give us your your story as a uh, as a working guy, but also some of the other stuff you've done uh, through the years? All right, that's gonna be tough to follow. Um, <laughs> I uh, I actually. My the rule in my house was that I didn't want to end up doing what my dad did. So I was okay in high school. Um, I sucked in like math and science and stuff like that, but like history and English, I did okay. So I got into college. Um, I didn't do too well there. You know, same thing. Half of them I did well, half I didn't. Um, and the way I first got into a union was uh to help pay for school. I got, my dad got me into his, he's uh, in the laborers union. Well, he's retired now, but he was in the laborers union in Boston. So I did that for a couple summers. Uh, when I graduated college, um, the economy kind of sucked. I couldn't find anything. I didn't really want to teach. So I just went back to the, went back to the laborers. We kind of moved around a little bit. We lived in right outside of DC for a year, came back again, couldn't find anything, went back to the laborers. Um, right after the crash, uh, I got into grad school at, uh, Boston university. So I did that. Um, when that time was up, we had a one-year-old, my wife was working at a nonprofit, so she wasn't making too much money. Um, the laborers weren't really hiring because everything was still kind of fucked up from the crash and, uh, I couldn't find any teaching gigs or anything like that. So a friend of mine worked at the commuter rail, got me an interview, and I was going to stay six months, and I've been here for like nine years now as a track laborer. Well, there you go. Um, 
the uh, the follow up to that, I think, too, is because as we sit here, um, I think all three of us are. Ser- I know all three of us are socialists. Um, we're anti-capitalists. Um, I can speak for myself and say that as far as it means anything, I myself am a Marxist, and I know that Billy and I did a capital reading group many years back. And oh yes read a lot of Marx in his day, so it's fair to call uh, Billy a Marxist too, I suppose. John, how did you yourself uh, become radicalized? Uh, because I, unfortunately, it's pretty rare in the relatively conservative trades to uh, actually be a socialist. So what was your story with that? Uh, it's kind of fucked up. But, uh, we, uh, we were raised Catholic, but my church, um, it was the head priest at the church. I remember it during the homily, like the end prayers, he used to pray for the redistribution of wealth from the rich to the poor. Nice. He like opened up uh, like a homeless shelter and stuff like that. And so I think that was kind of the first little inkling of it. Um, My parents were, I don't know, a few, they were good Democrats. Um, Both my grandfathers had worked at the Quincy shipyard. Um, and I think it was probably high school, no, it was probably college that I really started reading stuff on my own. And because um, that's all how I come to everything is I end up reading something that I freak out about. <laughs> um, it was really, I, it was probably really just all the history classes I was taking. I just ended up seeing the pattern. I'm like, oh, yeah, one small group of people always ends up well and everybody else gets fucked. Well, history is a weapon, as they say. That's what they say. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's weird. I can't really like pinpoint like the moment. Like, um, I remember people calling me a socialist when I was younger, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah." Exactly. <laughs> you weren't afraid. No, no, I mean, fuck that. No, I don't care. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I'll go next. I, um, similar to you, you know, I come from a uh, a union family, uh, at least on the one side of my family. And uh, there was certainly that sort of Democrat, uh, sort of like left liberal sort of, you know, solidarity politics that existed. Um, both of my grandfathers, though, because my great-grandpa, my great-grandpa used to have a uh, picture of FDR that sat in his home until he was like an old man, like 100 and something years old. It was almost like a shrine that he had to FDR because he came up in that world. You know, he came up in the New Deal world and, uh, you know, thanked FDR and the Democrats for basically allowing him to live a a good life, you know. Um, And so there was always that sort of tradition in my family. And then for me, coming out of high school in the 90s, you know, um, I could see that things, despite the Clinton boom, that things were really, really fucked up. I didn't really have a language for that then. I would have called myself a socialist, but it was more of like an intuition than anything else. Uh, and it was combined with a lot of sort of transgressive sort of punk rock stuff. So I was into some anarchism or whatever. And I think the first time I started to take things really seriously was the crash in 2008, 2009, because, you know, like you, John, I saw a lot of these patterns and I, I knew that shit was fucked up. I knew that capitalism was a problem. I knew that politicians weren't going to do anything for us. It was only, you know, when that giant financial crisis happened that I realized that I needed to study this, that I needed to understand why. And through that, you know, I just, I read a lot. I read a lot of history, which helped to sort of denaturalize the economy, denaturalize politics, denaturalize the world and make me see that, uh, you know, things don't have to be this way. And in fact, people have fought for centuries for things to not be this way. So ever since then, you know, I've I really tried to hone my analysis and also um, obviously try to get politically active and stuff. And now I would call myself 
uh, a socialist on a bad day and a communist on a good day. <laughs> so, Billy, uh, give us your, uh, your, your spiel here. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the 08 crash. The Lehman Brothers building in Times Square with the big uh, video displays that they had all the time, the massive building, is only half a block from where I live. And I ran down there because they were going out of business and they called all the employees in to pack up all their stuff in boxes on a Sunday, right. you know, on a Sunday night. It was Sunday night and all the employees of Shearson Lehman were slinking out with all their belongings because the company went out of business. Now, if anyone doesn't know, uh, the Lehman Brothers, not Shearson Lehman, but the Lehman Brothers at one time were Shearson Lehman and American Express. It was a one of the largest financial concerns in the universe. And I had friends that were computer programmers there from years ago. I could have imagined uh, Canada going out of business before right. Lehman Brothers. Yeah. They were just one of these literally to the, too big to fail. Yeah. Not because the government decreed them to be so, but just because they had too much money. And they went back all the way to the Civil War. The original uh, yeah. Lehman Brothers made their money slave trading in cotton in the yeah. South in the 1850s and 60s. I just couldn't believe it. And when I saw that image of the people streaming out of the building with their boxes and all their belongings because they were shuttering the doors of Lehman Brothers, I really thought this is it. You know, this is it. It's all happening now. If that can happen, anything can happen. And we have to press the advantage and just, you know, to the barricades. I, I really thought we were going for it that time. And then uh, Occupy happens a couple of years after that. Occupy down in Zuccotti Park. You know, I went down. A, I didn't sleep over too many times, but I used to go down there and make sure the hippies weren't freezing to death, <laughs> yeah. teach them how to insulate their clothes, newspapers <laughs> yeah. and stuff, you know, just make sure everybody got... I met uh, Patty Smith. Oh, no shit. Came down there to donate a bunch of books for people to read while they were stuck in, uh, in the park there. Yeah, oh, yeah that's very, cool very good gesture, very cool person. A lot of people came through the park, I remember. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was certainly exciting and interesting times. I think that uh, it could be an entire episode to sort of uh, look at the... At, at the the subsequent events after Occupy, because, um, you know, a lot of people dismiss it now uh, for good reason. You know, obviously it didn't leave that much of a lasting material imprint on the world. But I think in terms of like ideologically and in terms of sort of um, the, the, the concept that there, that there are possibilities, right, that, that people can come together and do something. I think it was a very, very formative moment for this resurgence of the left right now. Yeah, you that's know? when I met you back then, yeah. 08, right after the crash. Yeah, that's right. When we got all these Marxists together to study and determine, you know, what can we do? We were looking at reading Das Kapital with an eye toward the present and current events, not just the not just a close reading of the text. Yes, exactly. But how can we apply these things to the current state of affairs? Right, right. That was, I mean, that's that's really the uh, that's really the name of the game, right? Is uh, is trying to take this theory and apply it to the real world. Uh, John, um, in your piece, um, you do a lot of a lot of meditation on this sort of disconnect between being. Uh, an educated radical on the one hand, but also being a guy that works with your hands on the other. So um, talk a little bit about like um, about that, about, um, you know, your experience and uh, what it's like working up there, having this critique and having this analysis. Well, it's just it was weird listening to you guys talk about Occupy. Like I remember being in that uh, I was working for the railroad at the time when it was really getting going. And um, I remember being in the headquarters and a bunch of the old guys older guys were talking about it and like i used to never see anything like this but you could really see like the 
the generation gap. Because mm. even the kid, the guys who are like my age and a little bit younger, who might have not necessarily agreed with everything they were saying, like they definitely seemed to get why they were pissed off. Right. And a lot of you are like, oh, what do you mean that you know? They're like, yeah, this we're all gonna get fucked. Like anything that you guys had, you know, you could buy a house, you could go on, you know, you could do all this stuff. We're not gonna get it. Um, that generational divide is so stark between the old timers, you know, who were able to buy homes and the kids today. Yeah, and it's obviously not all of them. Like, the, you know, there's plenty of older guys who understand exactly what's going on. Um, but the the stuff about what I wrote, um, it was just, it was always a, it always felt strange because I was, like I said, I, I wasn't, my dad didn't want me doing it. My dad didn't want me ending up like that because back then they told you if, you know, you worked with your hands, then you were, uh, you know, you were part of the great unwashed, I guess. Right. Um, but I, at the same time, I kind of feel like I lucked out. Um, my friends who work in finance and I don't, you know, half the time when they tell me what they do, I have no idea what the fuck they're talking about. <laughs> uh, Fair. But they also were like, yeah, but you're going to have a pension when you retire. Um, you're not worried, you're not worried about your health care. You know, you're not, um, you're not stuck in an office and you're not going to lose your job at any, you know, the threat of losing your job isn't just hanging over you all the time. Um, that's and it just really, it seemed uh, it seemed strange that these were the growing up in the eighties and nineties. Those were supposed to be the people who were secure, like those were right. supposed to be the ones who were going to make it. And they seem to feel a lot more precarious than I do now. Of course, that was the the thing that I always saw in uh, software development, computer programming. They'd have crunch time near the end of a project, and they'd say, "Okay, everybody's got to stay here uh, twenty four hours a day, practically, and sleep here and stuff." And I'd be going out the door at five o'clock like yeah, i'm not doing that you know i'm not doing that so if you can get by without my contribution then fire me but i was always a, a contributor a consulting programmer not a staff programmer and the staff programmers well of course they want to make them stay all night they got no overtime they didn't even get straight time for the yeah, extra hours yeah. after eight hours they didn't they got nothing and it's the same in finance oh we guys we need you guys to come in this weekend because uh like that movie had uh, the off the office movie where the meme guy is always there like yeah, yeah, yeah i'm gonna need you to go ahead oh, and come office, in space. Office, office space office space right 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 <laughs> classic <laughs> yeah well that's what it really is like you know i'm gonna need you to come in on sand on saturday and sunday yeah are you out of your mind? First of all, that's time and a half all day Saturday and double time on Sunday. Yeah. So if you really need it, go, yeah, I'll be here. So, but, of course, they don't get any of those amenities that we have, the overtime. So that's why they can, you know, they say, well, those are the guys that are more secure. Well, at one time in the 80s, those stockbrokers were making a lot of money mm -hmm. because they were riding an artificial bubble of junk bonds and such. And it looked like they were really, you know making more money so a lot of them were a lot of them definitely were but all the guys i know in the 80s that were building the skyscrapers that were holding the offices that these guys worked in they still have their annuity stamps yeah that's right yeah. you know they still have all their pension money right. unspent yeah yeah no that that honestly it, i was already leaning in that direction because i couldn't keep doing what i was doing i was sick of being poor and i was sick of also not having a sense of my future so what really did it for me in joining the trades was the idea of a defined benefit pension which is a very, very rare thing nowadays. The idea of a, an annuity and an actual retirement. And um, it's interesting, like we're talking about this generational split because um, 
you know, in a weird way, I think just because of the the way that the economy has changed and how precarity has come for the white collar uh, professional managerial class, you know, in this sort of late, late, late stage neoliberalism, things have kind of flipped but where the, the legacy that these building trades, you know, what they've created over the last 150 years and really in, in New York City, I'm sure in Boston too, this the power that they had 100 years ago or so, right? Um, the legacy of that allows you now, if you're in the trades, if you're in that business, to have an element of security and even just the sort of work rules, but the, you know, even like uh, time and a half and double time, which are uh, becoming exceedingly rare in this because those rights that were won are not being updated for other industries and for other workers. So in a bizarre way, something that was, as John said, something that was looked down upon, right? Like great unwashed masses is now becoming, I think for a lot of people, certainly the people that I talk to, like the younger guys in my, in my union, it's becoming like one of the last ways that you can actually make a decent buck, you know, like do honest work and know that you're going to get, you know, your, your 40 hours and know that you'll get overtime if you work Saturdays and Sundays and, you know, be able to do things like buy a house and have a car and just live like a normal middle class life now, which becomes harder and harder, I think, for a lot of people. Oh, my, uh, my wife is a, a middle school teacher. Mm. And so she'll, uh, she talks to a lot of the kids about like, you know, going to high school and everything like that. And, uh, of which she, she teaches up closer to Boston than where we live, but the regional technical high school has a waiting list. Like wow. the public technical high school has a waiting list because these kids, a lot of these kids, and then, you know, kids who get good grades, like kids who come from, you know, stable home, everything. Um, they kind of, everybody kind of sees the writing on the wall. They don't want the loans um, and they don't seem to want to, they don't seem to have the same. Um, stigma about being a plumber or electrician and any of that no it's 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 fascinating now like um you know especially the generation that comes up after that crash we were talking about which is now what 12 years ago at this point uh, 11 12 (laughs) years ago 12 years now believe it or not um you know, if you came up in that economy, you just graduated out of that. There's a completely different sense of what's possible and what's desirable out of that. You know, I graduated high school in 98 and that was the dot com bubble, you know, and there were a bunch of kids that I went to school with who like literally went out to Silicon Valley and for a couple of years straight out of high school were making really, really good money. Then that crash comes and they wash back up onto the shores. They come back east and they're back in their parents' basement again. Well, imagine that happening several times to people, right? Imagine, you know, coming up in an economy 10 years ago or so where there aren't those jobs, where the expectations you had in the United States of being like an educated white-collar worker were completely dashed, you know, on the, sh- on the shoals of the economy. So I think that this is it's not just us and it's not just the people we talk to. I think there is this generational, this seismic shift right now in, like, in what it means to, to be a worker in this country and what the quote-unquote good life means. Uh, more and more people, I think, are jaded towards what we've been told for the last, like, four or five decades, which is that if you want to make it, you, uh, you got to go to college, you know, and you got to get that uh, office space type job, right? I know you fellows have a couple of different shingles between the two of you. I never graduated from college. I went and I started going and then the dot-com boom started really ramping up and the money was just too tempting. So most of the guys I knew dropped out and started writing software. We were all engineering majors and we just dropped out because the money was phenomenal. It was like 75, 80 bucks an hour and that was back in the late 80s. It was a wow, king's ransom. Yeah. There was no way you could turn it down. So, you know, uh, 
no matter how educated we all got back then, you start to learn, you know, that defined pension is really, uh, it's really something. Because uh, my mother used to say, Billy, if you don't stay in school, you'll end up digging a ditch. And I know that sounds, you know, reasonable advice for a mother to give her son. Uh-huh. But Ma, the ditch guy, he's got a sweet pan head and a pension that nobody can ever take away from him. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you want to dig a ditch. You know, I don't understand the problem. It doesn't look that hard. I learned how to dig a little ditch in the Boy Scouts. What's the problem? <laughs> Hell yeah. I want to uh, switch gears a little bit here because I want to talk about another legacy that we have going back. Which is, um, and, and I've, I've obviously seen this on the job all the time, it happens on an almost daily basis, is the way that uh, these craft unions, right? Because if we're talking about, you know, your brotherhood, John, up in uh, Massachusetts or, the, or Lyuna, the laborers that you used to work with, we're talking about Billy's union, or we're talking about my union. These are unions that historically were based on skilled labor. They were, uh, they were based on crafts. They were broken up by these different sort of work processes so that, you know, the uh, wire lathers are going to do one thing. The uh, operating engineers are going to weld. The uh, steam fitters are going to be doing HVAC. It's broken up into these different jurisdictions and all of these separate trades that are based on a, a very skilled process that takes many years to actually master. Um, because of that, that craft unionism, right, and because of the business unionism that comes out of that, this sort of symbiosis, uh, real and imagined, between capital and the contractors and the unions on the other side where you, you'll still see those T-shirts on the job that say labor and management together, right? This is the, the union's ideas are that um, if the company's making a good buck, then we're going to do well. We can shake hands with the owner and, uh, you know, what's good for them is good for us. It's this real old school business unionism that sees the worker and the owner as sort of in it together, right? It's literally a trickle down, yes. you know, in, in sheep's clothing. Yeah. And the flip side of that is because these trades have typically have, have been uh, skilled ones, right? And uh, not industrial, but craft union. There is a real... Um, a real politicization of work. Like I, you see this all the time on the job where people live and die by that contract. They might not be socialists. They might not believe that the working class in general has rights on the job, but they believe that they in particular have rights on the job. And they're also willing and able to, and often do fight for that directly against the, the, uh, the supervisor directly against the contractor. And you see this all the time. I mean, Billy, maybe you have some stories about stuff that's happened, uh, you know, on, on your on your jobs uh, over the years where people went up against the company, maybe called the uh, the foreman or the super an asshole or even punched him in the face and showed up to work the next day. Oh, that was that. That's not even a, a, a story worth recounting. I'm talking about maybe one day on payday, you find out uh, the carpenter's money it wasn't right. And everyone in every trade downs the tools until the carpenter's money gets here. And you see this armored car coming around the corner on two wheels with a guy throwing bags of money out. Please, please go back to work, please. <laughs> you know, that's the kind of you know, solidarity that you saw back then. And sometimes you see it now and yeah. sometimes you don't. Yeah. I don't know. You know uh, we want to talk about the Hudson Yards situation oh God, down yeah. there. There were have actual you, trade unions crossing picket lines of other people. Have you heard about that, John? The the Hudson Yards open shop drive they're doing down yeah, there? Yeah, I, I read an article about it, and what happened? They they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't let the the cleaning staff organize, right? Is that 
what the deal it, was at the end? Or? It was, uh, well, Billy, you go yeah, ahead. And yeah, and you're right. You've got it right there, the cleaning staff. And, but the, the point is that there was pickets up against the job, and no one would cross them, obviously. And the iron I just know my own guys. The Iron Workers International said, well, we've got a relationship with this contractor, and we make, uh, we, it, it brings in a lot of jobs. We have a specific you know, requirements that to man, to man this job. So you guys have to cross that picket line and some local unions, uh, especially local 46 here in New York city. They said, what? No, of course we're not going to do that. We're not crossing a picket line. Why would you even recommend to suggest that ever? That's basic, basic unionism right there is don't cross a picket line. Yeah, Come on. The one thing, even my mom, the (laughs) stay in school or dig a ditch lady never would have crossed a picket line. There you go. But, they said you have to do it, and the local refused, and the international put the local into receivership. Mm. I don't know how to describe that to people it's not in the building trades. They come they in and they wipe they, it out. Yeah, they fire all your leaders, and they put international approved leaders in the union, and they run the union until they f- can get it all figured out or whatever. Yeah. You know, but the fact is, they told a local union to do something. And, to cross a picket line and the local said no so they said okay we're taking over they we're wiped coming them down there you want yeah. us to come up there we will and they did and uh the broader context uh, as i understand it is that you had something called the new york plan which was from the 19 teens where the building trades you know central labor council um won essentially uh 100 unionization uh in the city you know across all the different trades and for all the major building projects in the city in the last 20, 30, 40 years, more and more non-union contractors uh, have entered the city, New York City, and uh, have started to run work, including big jobs uh, on the scale of Hudson Yards, started to run them without union labor, which came as a real shock, I think, to all the leaderships around here. And certainly all the time on the job, you hear guys bitching about it. The monopoly that the trades had on skilled labor in the city is breaking down. And capital, uh, these big contractors, the general contractors, the contractors themselves are seeing this opening where why should I pay a guy $106 an hour, right? When I can, you know, pay a guy $50, $60 an hour. Why should I put up with these work rules that said a lather is going to do lather work, an operator is going to run a machine when I can have a guy jumping from the machine from the excavator, you know, down to to, to tie steel? So this is like a concerted effort. And Hudson Yards was, like, I think, it was shocking because of how big the project was. They tried to, because of there's all these different jurisdictions, all these locals and all these unions, they're trying to get in between them and pit one group of workers against another group of workers. Crossing a picket line is a perfect example. I think the carpenters, even they crossed the picket line to go into Hudson Yards. And the company's saying, we want an open shop. We want to choose whether we use union or non-union. And that's just the death knell. You know, that it's already been bad over the last 20, 30 years. But if they can get those good projects like that and break the unions, uh, I mean, it's going to be a bad future. Uh, there but, was, a, uh, there yeah, was another situation downtown uh, when they were doing the Freedom Tower re- replacement World Trade Center buildings. They had the Homeland Security men down there running background checks on every worker that was going to work in, down there. And I, I never went down there. So I'm not doing that. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a journeyman iron worker. I don't need to have a background check run on me. I already did the background check when I got the book. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, John, what's it like up in Boston? Is non-union and open shop a thing up there? Uh, they, they get – see, Massachusetts has, a, uh, has the oh, – what do they call it? The Project Labor Agreement. Uh, PLAs, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, so you can 
like there's a the project to extend the green line right now. Um, I think there's some non-union work up there just because there's so much work going on in the city right now. But they have to pay them the full the full amount. Yeah, they got to I mean, give them the scale, wage. the wage scale. Yeah. I still don't like yeah. it. I mean, because you know, how are you going to run a railroad with people that you don't really know if they know what they're doing or not? Yeah, well, there you these go. These are just the guys who are building. Um, who are building the new tracks and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're talking so, about yeah, thermite welding. It's, it's complicated. Yeah. It's I wouldn't want some schmuck dangerous. off the street doing that. Yeah. But they, it's, it's not on the scale of that. It's not on the scale of something Hudson Yards. They just try it. Like when they did uh, the assembly road project in Somerville, it was all just like condos and restaurants at some old, old industrial site. I think they snuck on uh non-union bricklayers or something like mm. that. Right. Um, but it's, it's not on that scale. I mean, the mayor is, uh, the mayor used to be the president of my old local. Oh, sure. When I was in the laborers. Wow. Um, so it's kind of, I think it's kind of hard to sneak that stuff in on that same scale as New York. But doesn't, but the, I think that shows another dynamic that exists um, for all unions, but uh, particularly the trades, which is that more and more for many, many decades now, we've been relying on politicians you know, to do our work for us. There's a new law that was passed in the city by the city council that you had to have 30-hour OSHA instead of 10-hour OSHA. Um, the unions lobbied really, really hard for this to try to get the politicians to, to pass laws, you know, almost as a substitution for actually standing up and fighting. We're giving up all these concessions. We're allowing non-union in, right? And then the, the highest form, I guess, of, of protecting the union is getting the right mayor in there, getting the right council in there, which is way different from what I understand than what it was like back in the day. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the stories that my grandparents and my dad would tell me about what it was like. I mean, you'd have cops enforcing a picket line with the guys out on strike. Like, it was completely different atmosphere do you have uh, there any good uh strike stories you can tell us from back then or other sort of activities <laughs> uh, uh your secrets are safe with us <laughs> just stuff that got passed down about you know um the ba say, telling all the guys stand outside like you know behave yourselves you know don't start no trouble going in coming out five minutes later telling everybody to pick up a brick or a stone <laughs> and put it through the windows um just stuff like that Billy, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, and even as recently as the late 80s, there were stories of non-union construction sites being dismantled at lunchtime <laughs> by the union site across the street. You know, that's a non-union site. We got to get rid of it. They'd run over there, dismantle all the work. They had to knock down concrete forms, do, you know, various acts of sabotage. Yeah. And the next day, lo and behold, the contractor signed up with the union. Oh, surprise, surprise. So there you go. Now the building goes up pretty as you please. But you don't really see that anymore because, uh, I don't know, I guess it's terrorism or something. Ah, uh, yeah. Sticking so, up for labor rights is now you're a terrorist. What, you say corporatized, John? Yeah, it all feels, you know, it, it, I was thinking when you were, when Billy was talking about them doing background checks, I'm like, Jesus Christ, half the guys <laughs> in all the locals I know wouldn't make it if they did. I know. Like, find these. open warrants. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, these guys did their apprenticeships in prison, some of them. <laughs> yeah, it, it just sounded like it was, you know, it was more of a place where you could kind of escape if you uh, if you wanted to clean up. But now it just, you know, with all the drug tests and, um, you know, the background checks and everything like that, it seems like it's a much more uh, sterile environment as far as the personalities you find. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. Um, I think that corporatized is, is a really good way to put it, too, because... Um, 
you know, we're in an economy right now, and we have been where, you know, capital and the politicians have really doubled down on the housing crisis. Housing and development is more now a, uh, an investment tool, really, than, uh, than anything else. Uh, massive amounts of money going into building these giant projects, massive money going into building condos, for example, which, as Billy, we were talking about before the show over at the cafe, um, they, they remain empty. There's billions and billions and billions of dollars uh, in construction, which means that the small contractor that used to exist in the city, which did, you know, four, five, six, you know, decent sized jobs every year is now being replaced by a Skanska or a Turner. These giant corporations that are international now making that international money and changing the real environment of what it's like to, to work, you know, and who's working. You've got luxury condominium high rises going up and funny, nobody ever moves into them. They just use as real estate vehicles, so, you know, a tranche in some collateralized debt obligation. A REIT, a real estate investment trust. Right. right? It's all the institutional investors and shit now. So the buildings remain empty and the homeless remain undomiciled. And you, you live in Hell's Kitchen, right? Right. The good old Irish Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I like it. It's convenient. Yeah, that's fair. To the food emporium where I go shopping. No, it's not really that great. <laughs> I'm probably the last tradesman in Hell's Kitchen. It is a super expensive neighborhood to live in now, and nobody lives there, and it's kind of sterile. You don't see any children. There's no little strollers or anything. You know, everybody's got a little dog, but nobody's got a little stroller. Right. It's just a bunch of NYU students and stockbrokers, and they're all piled in to these $3,000 a month studio apartments, and there's four of them. Five of them. So you're sort of left behind there. John, yeah, I'm the last of the, mo- last of the iron workers from uh, my family. And John, you talked about um, all of the, the science money and all the tech money that's gone out to Boston and really changed the face of that city too, right? Oh my God. It's um, even outside of, like I grew up right outside of Boston, right uh, south of the city um, in Quincy. And even there, like I didn't, I mean, my neighborhood growing up was it was fine but it wasn't great but um i couldn't afford to buy a house there now not on both our incomes i like i don't know how you guys afford to live in the city like uh, you do. we rent but <laughs> we got 10 roommates even, even renting an apartment if i i mean i have three kids so we'd have to get a big apartment but yeah. uh even finding like a two-bedroom or one-bedroom like talking to the kids that uh that i work with the guys who are in their 20s and stuff it's it's not easy they all have roommates um it's cheaper to buy a house like far away than it is to rent in the city. Yeah, which that's why a lot, of, a, lot of, not true. a lot of people, a lot of working people PA. live way out in the country. So yeah. way upstate. Or way Pennsylvania. Out yeah. Cove, Long Island. Yeah. And they commute in two hours each way to do Jesus the jobs. Christ. Yeah, two hours. That's a, I'd say that's about a standard commute yeah. for the workers of Manhattan. It's true. Two hours each way. Yeah. Because they live out in the Poconos or way out in Long Island in some post-industrial Beach Town or Pennsylvania, you know, some rust ex former rust bucket thing, uh, rust belt town on the Delaware Water Gap, yep. and they ride the bus in two hours every and, morning. And this is what people, and this is this again is about expectations versus reality because um, 
this is what people are doing here in New York and in Boston, and I'm sure in Los Angeles and San Francisco and Chicago and elsewhere, just to live that same life that 30, 40, 50 years ago was sort of taken for granted that you would be able to buy a home, you know, that you would be able to send your kids to a decent school. Um, now, you, in order to get that, you have to spend what? 10, 20 hours a, a week simply commuting, sitting there in your car or on a bus just to get to work. It's like another job. Right. It's like a job and a half, a regular 40-hour job. Now it's 60 hours. And this American dream of home ownership, the suburbs, I was never that cracked up about the whole thing anyway. It was sort of a, an anti-communist scheme. Oh, yeah. We just had a whole history as a weapon people, about that. To, to keep people... <laughs> from talking to each other because you're out in the suburbs you're tired as hell when you get home from work you just want to sit down and relax and go to sleep early whereas you know if you're walking to work yeah you get to talk people you can yeah. talk to the people in your neighborhood but uh levittown again william levitt the original yeah. suburbs these were stone anti-communist warriors. You said a man, a man that owns a house cannot be a communist he has too much to be to a communist if you own your Didn't own house design? Didn't he design Levittown? Yeah, so he, was the, he, was, he was the designer congregate. of it. They, they couldn't what? Congregate? Yeah, so that there wouldn't be a big mass demonstration anywhere in it or anything like that. Like there was no like town square or anything yeah. like that. I thought I read that somewhere. This, is the, this was the ideology of the suburbs. And for folks who haven't listened to History as a Weapon yet, Matt Crispin and I uh, go for about an hour and a half, two hours on this. But yeah, the suburbs themselves were, cons were, were designed to be an anti-city, you know, where there were these... Uh, you know, densely packed neighborhoods with working class people. Maybe the union hall was up the street. Certainly the local bars and restaurants or whatever where people could congregate and come together, talk about their mutual experiences and, uh, you know, live life in solidarity, relative solidarity with each other. This was destroyed by the suburbs. And Absolutely. this is, a, and, you know, the dispersal of the working class. And John, you, you speak very eloquently about this in, uh, in your Baffler article, the sense that, um, that working class people have not just white, and every time we use white working class, by the way, we're going to put it in quotation marks, okay? So just imagine those in your mind, right? But this sense in these cities like Boston, which has all this, you know, medical and tech money floating around and certainly like university money, right? The universities buying up land and becoming larger and larger and more bourgeois and bureaucratic. The whole Route 128. Yeah, LA. that whole thing. And then, you know, there's, but there's still like hundreds of thousands and millions of working class people, white black, brown, whatever, who are left, seemingly left behind in this, right? That aren't seen except maybe, you know, when another movie about South Boston comes out about gangsters or something like that. So talk a little bit about uh, this sort of disconnect, you know, between, you know, the bright and glitzy economy of a place like Boston versus like the Quincy Boston, the Boston where like, quote unquote, regular people live. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it has such a, uh, I mean, I'm sure you guys have read about like the busing and everything like that. Oh yeah. Um, but whatever you know, what always gets lost in that is that these were they didn't do this in like one of the suburbs like Wellesley or anything like that. This was something that they did in the poor neighborhoods in Boston, like black and white. And uh, just in the past, you know, Jesus, when I graduated high school in '97, so it probably started around then, maybe a little bit earlier. But just so much money has piled into the city. Um, a lot of the guys I worked with in the laborers, they all uh, grew up in neighborhoods like Dorchester and Southie and Jamaica Plain and stuff like that. And they've all gotten pushed out. Mm. And it's starting to happen. Uh, the guys I talk to who live in like the black neighborhoods in town, they say it's the same thing starting to happen in those neighborhoods too. Um, they just, you can't fight it. You can't fight it. Guys are getting, you know, um, 
the two family they'd buy so that their kids could have an apartment above them um, or their their parents could stay with them or something like that. They're all getting sold for, you know, two million dollars or something like that. Right. Um, and everybody's getting pushed out. Like, I, like you know, a two, I don't have a two hour commute, but I couldn't stay in in a in my hometown anymore. Um, and it's all, it's always the same thing when you talk to anybody, they're like, Oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And it's like, well, the only thing you can do is have like, you know, uh, what, what's that? Uh, red Vienna. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. It's really, literally. It's the only way you're ever going to do it. Like they can't build enough cause they're just more rich. People are going to buy more fucking condos. So, but nobody, you know, I don't know. Nobody wants to do that. Well, the Red Vienna for folks, for listeners that don't know, was a... Uh, no, sorry. No, no, it's fine. I, I'm, I'm here to fill in the gaps because um, I know I know Red Vienna. Billy smiled when you said Red Vienna. These were uh, massive, um, what we would call projects, housing projects that were done in Vienna when it was red, when it was run by communists and socialists. This massive program of public housing, which you know didn't quite decommodify housing, but for a... Um, a working class, uh, you know, in that city, it allowed people for the first time to have space uh, for their families and for themselves, for working people to have these, you know, giant, uh, you know, community structures that they could live in and uh, not be drowned by rent or drowned by mortgages, which I think um, that the housing crisis is very much tied into these movements of money and capital that we're talking about. I want to um, talk about, too, um, and maybe this gets us more into like political consciousness, right? Because John, you mentioned uh, people are like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Um, there is, I think, similar to how there's an intuitive sort of class struggle uh, uh, inside, uh, you know, the, the heads of the workers, the, the, the people that we work with. They understand that the boss is the enemy. They understand that, uh, you know, at the end of the day, like they're out there to, to make a buck off of us. Right. And that like they're going to do anything they can to to basically like get more profits, uh, how that actually translates into action, of course, is, is very, very different. But um, maybe we can start with you, Billy, like from this sort of intuition about how the workplace is fucked up um, and then how the housing market is fucked up, for example. What sort of uh, what do you think the general sense among people in the trades is about like how this happens and what to do about it? Well, unfortunately, most of well, I can't say most. I hear many, many workers say, I just want to get my family out of here, out to the suburbs, you know, and buy a nice house out there. So you don't get a lot of, well, we should, have, we should be building worker housing, right. hospitals, schools. I used to do that 25 years ago. I built Mount Sinai Hospital extensions right in Spanish Harlem. I built, you know, housing projects, schools. They haven't built a housing project in New York City in a long time. Yeah, you know, and to say what, what how, I don't know, do you mean how can we get workers to like be how, more interested I mean, well, in that, well, right? Well, for, for now, like, uh, what I guess I'm interested in, I'll rephrase it, is how this sort of, like, elemental class consciousness, uh, which understands that shit's fucked up, um, how, how that operates, you know, how that... Um, like I'll give you an example. All right. So I was on the job the other day and I, I work for a uh, Portuguese outfit. So uh, it's great in the building trades. You get to learn new um, ethnic slurs. So I learned that uh, a, a Portuguese is a pork chop. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, the P slur. I won't use that again on the on the podcast. But, uh, you know, I work uh, with these Portuguese and, you know, people are like 
relatively liberal, you know, on stuff. Uh, there's one guy. He's a uh, he's a, a retired uh, concrete laborer, and he's the site safety coordinator on the job. Because you have to have this like sinecure, right? This guy who's retired and he's making a hundred dollars an hour. He gets to you know he has to sit there the entire day to make sure people are quote unquote safe. Um, you know, another way that the the trades are changing and it's becoming more corporatized. Anyways, we were like joking around on the job, you know, four or five of us uh, in the shanty before work started. And we were talking about non-union. And this shows, I think, how like distorted class consciousness is because the guy, <laughs> this guy, Anthony, he says, uh, ah, I know how to get deal with, uh, how to deal with non-union. What we got to do is we got to do what the Arabs do, what the Muslims do. And we got to go to the non-union job sites and they convert to union or they die. You know, so there's <laughs> there is something there's almost a class consciousness there. But like it's also combined with racism and it's combined with xenophobia. Right. This is just more like a, a mafia type of an right. attitude. You know, you're with us or you don't work. Right. You know? His name is Anthony, which <laughs> which is, uh, you know, something I've seen a lot of. You know, you're going to be union or you don't work. Now, when people come to work, uh, especially immigrants, and they just want to do a day's work. You get something like a PLA, a better PLA than we ever had. Mm-hmm. We have some of these here in New York, but up in Boston, it's much, much better. But if you have to pay everyone that living wage, then it looks more attractive to hire the union because they're doing all the training right, and the right. safety observation. That's the they? political aspect of it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that, that, that's like that. But as far as changing people's attitudes toward that, yeah, you have to say, well, if we look to the future with an eye toward organizing these people and, you know, making sure that they're making a living wage, they won't be sneaking in right. $10 an hour laborers to sweep the deck while they're tying rebar with the other hand, right. you know, that kind of thing. Working 18 hours and getting paid for six. Right. How about you, John? What's, what's, how's, how's, uh, the, let's do a vibe check on class consciousness on, in your workplace. How, how are you guys doing up there? It, again, it seems uh, it seems like there's a real generation gap. I mean, I, again, it's it's tough when you say general like generalized shit like that. But like, um, and I don't know if it's because more kids do at least a little bit of time in school or or what. Um, but the it's the younger guys seem to have a better understanding of it. Like, I mean, just thinking about what you what we were just talking about, like that worked with so many guys who were from who grew up in Boston who grew up in projects um, and they like that just seemed to be the part of the cycle like you got married you started having kids you moved into the city housing uh, you got a job with the water department you got a job as a, in the carpenters union or something like that and then you either moved out to your own apartment or you moved out to a house I mean you're still in the city but you're just a little bit further out um, but they don't seem to connect that because then they start talking about you know people leeching off the government and stuff it's like dude you lived in government housing right um that's like uh keep your hands uh keep the government hands off my medicare right oh they say it all like even guys i work with like all these state employees it's like who do you think you work for (laughs) (laughs) you're working for the uh massachusetts bay transit authority right yeah it's it's not the raytheon transit authority they just never make the connection of us like, right. They all leave. We stay. Right. Anyway, um, it does seem like there was a real big shift after the crash. It seemed like whatever. I mean, there are still people who grew up in the '80s and stuff that still have a, you know, a mindset about making money and 
business and stuff like that, but it seems like a lot more people have lost faith in the system. I mean, and sometimes it manifests itself and, you know, all politicians suck and everybody sucks. And, you know, um, when they complain about people on welfare and stuff like that, it always, not always, but a lot of times like, well, where's mine? Right. It's like, oh, so it's not bad that they're getting benefits. It's just that you don't think you are. Right, right. Even uh, though, like, uh, you know, quiet subsidies to, like, uh, especially, you know, in terms of housing for, like, especially white people in this country, you know, have been around for decades now. Uh, you know, your mortgage deduction and all this. This isn't, that isn't seen as welfare. It becomes this sort of racialized, you know, again, xenophobic, like, anti-immigrant uh, sort of political sense. Yeah, the immigration stuff was funny because I, when I, uh, the laborers look like worked in, um, it was it was the Irish local. It was the Irish side of town. Like the, <laughs> they had that, and if you you know you cross the river on the other side, it was the Italian guys. Mm. Um, so you didn't hear that too much. And they, I mean, they might say something, but then if there was some guy that got in who was from uh, who's from one of the islands um, in the Caribbean or something like that, or who was from uh, South America, Central America, they all got along just fine. Um, I used to have a steward yelling at me in Irish and my foreman yelling at me in Portuguese or Spanish. And <laughs> they'd start yelling at each other. And, um, but it was more about, it wasn't so much about the people. It was more about like what you were talking about, what Billy was talking about. There's, you know, they're going to hire some guy for 10 bucks an hour to, uh, risk it, you know, with no safety gear, no training, right. anything like that. So we have to address the elephant in the room, which is, uh, the president of the United States, Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. Uh, when we're talking about like political consciousness or we're talking about immigration, we're talking about working class people who are frightened of you know the future and, and their possibilities and are really getting stepped on and stomped on right now. Um, I remember in, in the, during the primaries, uh, so 2015, 2016, I was working at LaGuardia Airport. A whole lot of work there. I was working with a pretty big gang of guys. And to a man, I have to tell you that they were... Trump curious, but they hated, hated Hillary Clinton because they remembered what the Clintons did. I had a guy who, who used to be a ship, who used to be a ship worker, right? He, uh, you know, went out, he was in the union and then he, he learned to weld and then he had his own business, you know, breaking down sh ships and scrapping ships and NAFTA really screwed him over, right? So he knew the Clintons as, you know, the, the free trade, uh, job destroyers at the same time. Um, to a man, if they didn't like Bernie Sanders, you know, and his brand of, you know, social democracy or democratic socialism, they respected Bernie Sanders. But this yeah. de Democratic establishment you know, candidate, Hillary Clinton, they absolutely fucking despised. And I think that that shows a lot about, you know, what the appeal of Trump was and how, as we all know, Bernie would have won. Right. <laughs> so, uh, Billy, why don't you start? What's what's your, been your experience in terms of like electoral politics and how people feel on the ground? Democrat, Republican, Trump, yada, yada, yada. Well, first of all, full disclosure, I worked for Trump. I know I built one or two skyscrapers <laughs> for him and he always paid me on time. <laughs> that guys will say that. Guys will say that. They trust him because he's, he's a builder, quote unquote. Yeah. He always paid me on time, but that's only because I was an iron worker. Right. And when you're putting up high rise construction, the bank only will give you your next round of financing if they can see the floors climbing yep. into the sky. Concrete so you means can, paychecks. Yeah. So you can see, you can stiff every other person from the furniture to the guy putting in the carpet but he can't stiff the iron workers there you go so there there you go he always be on time but you know uh i i've seen the same thing you know people hated hillary 
I mean, despised her. And this is also where you see some disparity between union leadership and union membership. Yeah, yeah. The rank and file would despise the Clintons, but the leadership, you know, they have a different relationship with that, with that wing of the Democratic Party. Right. In some cases, not in all cases. Oh, my union saying. came out of the gate for Hillary Clinton super early. So, and the guys were, they were pissed off about it. There was no vote. There was no nothing. But the leadership decided that uh, they were going to go with a quote unquote safe bet of Hillary Clinton. And there you have it. I don't know about you. Did your, you endorsed uh, Hillary? Not yeah, personally. Uh, the but. whole AFL-CIO just went with the Democratic nominee, of course. Uh, not during the primary. Some, local, some unions did. But, of course, the AFL-CIO and their international membership unions all went for the How about uh, Trump, uh, like on-the-job, rank-and-file guys, pro-Trump or no? Well, you know, it, it's, it, I, I saw a lot of younger guys because you see that kind of I got mine, Jack, keep your hands off my stack yeah. attitude. But you, but you can't chastise them too much because, you know, it's just uh, cultural influences, yeah. you know. Uh, what what one of the presidents that's you see in more music lyrics than any other right. is Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, and he was on, obviously on television, right? So people yeah. relate to him He's that more, way. You know, money, 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 money. Yeah, people like that. Yeah, you know, and, and so now this game show host with his right wing populist message, which is a very seductive message, man, is very seductive to talk about old trade deals that were no good for the working class in this country, mm -hmm. and they were not. They were not. And Hillary was up to her neck in them. Mm -hmm. Just an unfortunate confluence of events and led to Trump. And, you know, I mean, I'm not going to go into the whole Hillary's uh, campaigning style or anything, mm -hmm. but the general attitude that I saw was Clinton, nah, give me the other guy. I, I see him on TV. He's a familiar face. Right. I know that guy. He. He helps people make money, right? You know, on his apprentice show, he's just a good. He's just good for that, right? Uh, how about you, John? Uh, some pro-Trump sentiment up there? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it, I mean, it goes. There's like the guys who actually like him, and then there were the guys I think who just uh, like the same thing. They fucking hated Hillary. Oh yeah. Um, but I, you know, what Sean was saying, uh, even the pro-Trump guys. It's exactly the same thing with Bernie. They might they're like, Oh yeah, he's nuts or you know, his ideas won't work, but then they'll be like, But you know what? He's always been saying the same things. Right. They like what he said about NAFTA. Yep. Uh they like that he's so pro union and everything like that. Um, but yeah, they did not like Hillary um at all. <laughs> even the even the guys who were like pretty hardcore Democrat didn't like her. Um it shows, I, think, you know, it, I can't blame him. No, it, it really shows you this, uh, and we're seeing this very clearly right now in the Democratic primary, the sort of emergent uh, left wing of the possible versus this old, tired centrism that just doesn't have any energy whatsoever and also doesn't have anything to offer. You know, it people doesn't appeal like to anyone. Right. I don't know who it appeals to. Because, like, oh, my boss you know, I have friends it. in the trades. I have friends in uh, who graduate from college and have office jobs and everything. They're not, you know, they're not all lining up behind Amy Klobuchar or anything like no. that. Like, <laughs> they, they're pissed off about not having uh, paternity leave or maternity leave. Their healthcare gets, they get fucked around with their healthcare and everything too. So, I mean, a lot more of them are for, that I know are for Warren than Sanders. Yeah. But they, they're not opposed to Sanders in any way at all. 
Yeah, this is really interesting because, and you talk about this in your piece, how um, the the blame, the fault for Trump was foisted on the quote-unquote white working class by people like J.D. Vance, by people on CNN, by people on MSNBC, and let's be honest, by Fox News using that as a propaganda piece, that this right-wing populism represents you know, the, the white working class's not only interest, but also their, their horizon of politics, and, and you know, that the white working class is to blame for this. So talk about that disconnect, John, and uh, you know, why maybe it's not the best to blame like, you know, the put-upon uh, trade, tradesman or tradeswoman and uh, instead well, of the other folks. Yeah, I mean, first off, they've been getting fucked for the last 40 years, right. uh, ever since the PACO strike. Um, and Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers and corporate America just started, you know, went hog wild, breaking unions and stuff. Um, but I mean, it, I've read a, a couple different things, how it wasn't even really the working class who voted for Trump, wasn't his biggest constituency. Um, I think that's right. I think it's the, but, the standard I mean, Republican. One thing that people, I don't know, I mean, just because everybody's brain is so fucking melted these days. <laughs> um, Trump wasn't, running like a Republican. Like, he said he was going to... Uh, I mean, he said crazy shit about immigrants and everything, you know, his normal spiel, but he said he wanted to tax hedge fund managers. Right. Um, he told... I mean, I didn't believe this, but he told people he, you know, he was going to get rid of Obamacare and replace it with something better. Right. Um, he talked a ton... Uh, the funniest moment in the whole primary with him was when he destroyed Jeb about uh, about Iraq. Uh, I forget what he said. Like, does anybody think that was a good idea? You know, see the <laughs> well, sure, his uh, claim to be able to replace Obamacare with something better resonated with the 20, 30 million people who were left off Obamacare. There you exactly. Go. Yeah. exactly. And who couldn't qualify for the Medicare expansion. Right. Um, so I, it was all... I, there was some old uh, conservative ghoul. Uh, was it Charles Murray? Mm. Um, he was flabbergasted because he's like, he, you know, he mentioned all that stuff and he's like this isn't the party i signed up for mm. you know i expect them to you know to give everything away to the rich and you know thank us for it um i mean of course i mean we're all from the east coast we know trump's shtick oh yeah uh, i knew what he was going to do when he got in there um the scariest thing is if he had actually tried to follow through on any of that stuff and actually got it um if he had taxed hedge fund managers, if he had actually replaced Obamacare with something better, which is, you know, they would have never let him do, but yeah. um, he'd be much more popular. No, we'd never be rid of him now. Then if he'd no, done any no, of that. he'd written for a thousand years. Yeah, and I, that's important because I think that Trumpism is different from Trump. And what we're talking about with this right-wing nationalism and the shit you're talking about, these promises to, you know, flip the switch on a lot of what's been happening politically if he actually did that, if there was what the conservatives are trying to create now, which is national conservatism, right? Uh, Tucker Carlson is the perfect example of this. That yes, would exactly. be a powerful force in this country and a frightening force. Like, imagine Trump, but if he actually like wasn't lazy and knew what he was doing, right? <laughs> if he wasn't, you know, if his brain wasn't half cocaine dust <laughs> right. uh, uh, skittles <laughs> if it wasn't pouring out of his ears all the time yeah he ran um, as an outsider yeah. which he is but imagine if he wasn't right and he was plugged into all these mechanisms of government and politics and journalism and so that's something that's that what be, scares me is someone yeah. that can that has all that has that platform but actually knows what the fuck he's doing and this is why I think this political split that we're seeing right now uh, within the Democratic Party is super, super important, whether the listeners out there are like really into electoral politics or not. 
um, we're starting to see there be an actual another option. So Trump represented another option from the bog standard uh, Republican, right? And now Sanders obviously represents a sort of left nationalism, or sorry, a, a left uh, populism that's arising in this country. And it's obvious, right, because we saw what happened with Clinton, that centrism is not going to defeat Trumpism uh, in the medium or the long term for that matter. I want to um, switch gears now and as, as we sort of get to towards the end of this episode and um, talk about the possibilities um, for the trades, whether it's the Brotherhood of Maintenance Way, whether it's the iron workers, whatever. Um, I think, you know, when I was talking about craft unionism before and I was talking about jurisdiction and I was talking about this kind of provincial mindset and we were talking about open shop um, and we were talking too about how this represents one of the last sort of opportunities that, you know, white, brown, black, working class people, immigrants, people who are born here have to make a decent life for themselves and to have union rules and protections and a pension. That is being attacked right now. And the trade unions are not putting up a good fight, as we've seen going back to Pat Cohen before, right? We're getting our fucking, our asses handed to us out there. Um, I want to talk about the possibilities for breaking out of this, for what a working class resurgence would look like in this country based on what we're talking about. So, Billy, you want to sort of tease out uh, the sort of contradictions within craft unionism and all that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. Sure, I do. Why, no, why not? I never need to shape up again. No, it, we've got a real problem. We've got a real problem in the trade unions, craft unions of internecine warfare, intramural squabbles between different trades and even different locals in the same trade. Right. You know, everybody knows, well, no, maybe some of our listeners don't know that if one union does the work of another union, it's a big, big problem. You know, there's going to be a big dispute and a lot of time and resources and skin sometimes is going to be spent resolving this conundrum. So we really have to get away from that sort of thing. We can't spend all the time fighting with each other when we only have one adversary. Right. You know, the bosses are our adversary, and that's it. It's not the other worker, you know. The main formula for class struggle is S over V for any Marxists out there. Surplus value over variable capital. You know, the amount of labor extracted from you divided by the amount of money they have to pay you. Right. You know, that's class struggle. Yeah. One fraction. And that's what we have to talk to each other about. Class struggle. And we have one adversary, not 50 adversaries. And this is the trick. One of the tr the right wing populism uses as a trick dividing the workers based on race, you know, where they were born or gender for that matter. Absolutely. I've seen trades that are, had to do round the clock shift work. Like uh, Sandhogs? Yeah. You know, John, the guys that built, dig the tunnels down here. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Sandhogs. They would have three shifts working 24 hours a day. And there'd be a shift run by the Irish. And then the, mid, the swing shift would be run by the hillbillies. Right. Guys from upstate. Yeah. And then one, the midnight shift run by the Jamaicans. Right. You know, like prison gangs. Right. You know, this is not the way you build class solidarity by separating people by race for shift work like that. That's it's insane. Yeah. That's a uh, really blunt example of, uh, of, of self-segregation within the unions. Right. And, and that's obviously a huge problem. John, what do you see up there in terms of this divide? Um, 
I just it uh, it's a lot of what Billy was saying. Just not being able to name your enemy. Right. Um, whenever I, I mean, we just had a contract uh, go through, and it sucks. But um, the, this, I mean, we have a lot of more restrictions than you guys because, of, like, the railroad railroad uh, labor act and stuff like that. Right. Um, I just the. <sighs> I don't know. I try to fucking think this stuff through all the time, and I can't figure it out. Oh, if you we had figured to, it out, then the shit would be different, right? <laughs> well, it just you. The model seems to have passed us by. Like the old model seems to be gone. Right. So you just we need a new answer when somebody asks us. Oh, what the fuck am I supposed to do? It's like this. It, you know, this is the answer. Like. And I don't know how to articulate it. Um, I, 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 those five little words that mean so much. What is to be done? What is to be done? There yeah. you go. Well, I, you know, I would, I'll take a little stab at this. And it's not a, it's not a new formula. It's actually, in a way, a very old formula. And I was bizarrely reading a debate between uh, Sidney Hillquist and Sam Gompers yesterday. Because I just do this sort of stuff from uh, 1914 <laughs> about uh, the AFL versus the Socialist Party and different visions of uh, the future of the working class 100 years ago. And, of course, the IWW was brought up a lot in that. Uh, I'm not saying that we all need to become wobblies, although out, listeners out there, if you're a wobbly, more power to you. And maybe we all do need to become wobblies. But... When you talk about, John, this model you know, that, that's falling apart, which we're visibly seeing on the streets and on the jobs, this model falling apart, uh, as we're being divided by trade, we're divided by race, we're divided by gender and all these things, industrial unionism, right? Industrial unionism is certainly in the crafts that becomes very, very, very clear that you cannot have people separated by these jurisdictions and every, all, all the boats rise at once, right? Imagine if we were all negotiating instead of in a pattern way, but negotiating together. Imagine if uh, instead of going in as a hundred different unions in order to negotiate against capital and fight for our rights and fight for our money, we were doing that as one and together. The problem with that, and we were touching on this when we talked about the political endorsements, of course, is that there is an entrenched leadership that exists in all of our unions you know i'm not just talking craft unions i'm talking even like the uaw that uh sees their interests as identical with that of the union and oftentimes they're out on the golf course with donald trump they're out on the golf course with the owner of the company that you're working for and they see their uh place in the world as much closer to those folks as to the rank and file itself uh this i don't think is is a misleadership problem i don't think that um this is simply some bad actors that you can clear those out. I think it's intensely structural. And as long as the rank and file doesn't have power, as long as the rank and file is putting up a representative every few years in order to represent their interests and deferring the class struggle from the shop floor, from the union hall, up into the offices, you know, and, and out into the limousines of the union leaderships that are going out into the streets, nothing, nothing can change. I think we've seen the results of that over many, many decades now. And I think that this sort of balkanized union system in the United States is failing and will fail if we continue down this route. Yeah, Absolutely. It, this I is mean, what I meant to say when I started talking about the internecine struggling right. between local unions. You need to organize as an industry. You know, I, I, I want to get the conditions improved for this kind of work, not for this town or this neighborhood right you really have to organize on a larger scale 
the Teamsters do well with this sort of thing. Yeah. They have a national contract. That's why the Teamsters don't have to deliver goods to striking schools when, it, right. when the teachers are on strike. And the UAW, they refuse to take the cars they out of the They won't drive the cars yeah. out of the factories because the auto workers are on strike. Right. That, that's that's the, an example of the kind of working class power that can be brought to wield against uh, bosses. These you know, sympathy strikes, and uh, secondary boycotts, yeah. this sort of thing, highly illegal, oh, bordering on hardly. terrorism, yeah. <laughs> bordering on terrorism in the United States. Right. But the Teamsters seem to get away with it, no problem, yeah. because there's a trillion Teamsters, and they all negotiate together for that one national contract. There you go. Well, I don't know. I don't know how much farther you have to look to see that that will be a good idea for everyone. Right. You know, everybody doesn't want to be a Teamster. Maybe everybody does, but. You, the more people you have negotiating, the better deal you're going to get, of course. Right. I mean, that's, a, that's the big thing, right, is like just amassing more people, just getting the numbers up and up and up because that's the only thing that can, you know, it's the threat. Yep. That's right. It's the only thing that they respect. Right. I heard some crazy old geezer talking about doubling uh, union membership in this oh, country yeah. last week. Who yeah. was that guy? The guy from Brooklyn, right? Yeah, Brooklyn guy. <laughs> right, right. Moved up to Vermont. The, uh, the sectoral thing, too. That's Sectoral bargaining. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, because that's what they have in France, right? That's Yeah. yeah. And you see what happens when... You know, they want to raise gas prices. Everybody starts setting fire to everything they can get their hands on. <laughs> Talk about class consciousness, right? Yeah, I think that this is ultimately, for me anyways, this is the wager of um, a Sanders candidacy and potentially a Sanders presidency. Is uh, I think we all know that capital and the state will resist any sort of reforms that Sanders or certainly Warren or anybody puts down. However, it is the mobilization of the working class under some vague sense of socialism and working class power that um, I think can be propelled forward as people start to hear this message more and more of this universal message that we are a class that's in opposition to another class. We are in opposition to their interests and we need to organize ourselves. And Sanders speaks that language very, very well. And uh, regardless of what he would be able to pass into office, I think you're starting to see that message resonate now with these strike waves. You know, we ha we're in the middle, the beginning of, hopefully, a serious strike wave in this country. When the UAW settled their contract, the Chicago's Teachers Union went out on strike. We have this sort of rolling, um, you know, class, class fight that's happening right now in this country. And I, it, you cannot, I think, disentangle that from what's happening on the political scene. And we've seen teachers' strikes in the recent past, just the last year or two, in places where you never see any unions activity, any strikes at all. Uh, strikes that are considered highly illegal, uh, state employees on strike, never uh, never been considered to be a lawful strike, and they all won. Yep. They all won their strikes. And then people see that from wherever they are in the country, and they see that these working class people, these teachers, were able to put their foot down and grasp the, the, the greatest power that any working class group has, which is to withhold their labor. They see that that it worked in that instance. And then, of course, this has this sort of, you know, psychological effect where this collective action starts to seem like a real possibility. And the teacher in the other state says, well, uh, I'm buying crayons with my own money. Right. Uh, they got their thing going. Why can't I do that here? Yeah. So you don't see a lot of this kind of class struggle on the, on the news. You know, uh, if you're a consumer of the news in the United States, you probably know more about 
some backbencher from California <laughs> in the House of Representatives that has an extra girlfriend or two right. than you do about the violent anti-austerity strikes all over the world happening right Dead now. Deadass. Deadass. What do you think, John? Yeah, I know. 100%. You don't really... I mean, uh, the teachers in um, the town up in Massachusetts, uh, like half hour away from me in Dedham, Massachusetts, they just went on strike, and it's illegal for them to strike. Um I don't know what's going on with the teachers, man, but they're fucking pissed off. They are. They yeah, are. Yeah, you know, you can say my strike's illegal, but you know what? I don't care anymore. Yeah. yeah. Being an illegal striker isn't that much of a stigma to me anymore. <laughs> yeah. That's what I say to my guys, too. They're like, well, we can't go on, on strike for more than one day. It's illegal. It's like, who gives a shit? What are they going to do? Right. I mean, this is, it's getting to the point now. And I think that we've, again, been like touching on this the entire time, this desperation that exists in this country right now, that it reflects itself in a lot of ways. Some ways are positive, like the strike wave we're talking about. Some ways are very negative, like Trump being president. It's all part and parcel, I think, of, of these diminished expectations and the diminished material reality for working class people in this country that they just, people aren't putting up with anymore. And it's beautiful to see. You'll love to see it, folks. It's, it's, a, great, it's a great thing. There was a strike of... Ten years ago or so out of Newark Airport, uh, Delta, maybe, I forget. But some airplane mechanics were on strike. And I went out there just to see what was going on and offer a little solidarity, walk around with a sign and help them out. And I suggested, why don't we just go out on the tarmac and just stand in front of the airplane so they can't move them around. <laughs> and they almost dropped dead. Oh, he heaven forfend. That's an exclusion zone. Right. It's so illegal. It's a terrorist thing i was like yeah so what what are they gonna do arrest all the mechanics of the right. airplanes exactly they that, that at a certain point with a certain numbers they can't do shit um i have a, a fun little story this comes from uh, my local which is doing relatively well this was about a year and a half two years ago uh in the midst of a negotiation with the concrete league so only one group of contractors when there's maybe six or seven that we do these individual negotiations with <laughs> we uh got a phone call around 7 8 o'clock in the morning from a shop steward or a business agent, I forget who it was, that said, if you're on a concrete league job, we are striking them. So in, say, Manhattan, it was maybe like 20% of the jobs that existed. A couple hours later, we weren't part of the strike. A couple hours later, we're getting these calls. You guys going out? You guys going out? We're like, well, we're not, we're not on that contract, so we don't have to go out. As it turns out, we started getting more and more like automated calls from the union telling people to go back to work because across Manhattan, our people were walking out in droves and shutting down, you know, job sites that didn't have anything to do with this whatsoever. It turned into a two-day wildcat strike because people saw that this was happening. Rank-and-file members said, oh, they're going on strike. Well, I have grievances, too. I'm going to go on strike. And pretty soon, all of these jobs were shut down, and I was happy to be a part of the thing. And the union, of course, is like leaving you voice. If you are not on a concrete league job, return to work immediately. Return to work immediately. <laughs> and guess what happened when that, the next day with that contract negotiation? We won. Because of people of wildcatted. Of course we won, right? This is like the kind of disjoint uh, grievances. Well, Concrete League, for those of you who don't know, it's just a, a few companies that get together and form their own like business sort like of a union, union of contractors. Concrete yeah. providers. Right. And they're on strike. Well, I got grievances of my own. And I work with concrete. So, you know, close enough. Let's exactly. all just go out on strike. Exactly. It's like the French... Yellow vests, right? Gilets jaunes. They they they're out together protesting for over a year now, and they are not all on the same page with each other at all. Some of them are just out there because they're libertarians and they want lower taxes. Right. Some of them are out there for all kinds of reasons, 
you know, but they're all out together because, well, he's got it. He's getting to say his piece and strike on his grievances. Why can't I? That's why I think back when, uh, back when the stuff happened in Wisconsin, it like, that was the one time I've seen on every, like the job that I was on where I, where was I working then? But Whenever I saw that guy, whenever that guy's face came up and I was around people, oh, Scott was like, Walker. This, yeah, Walker. Yeah, like, this motherfucker right here. We got to fucking get hit. Like, they were ready to throw with that guy. And it just, it. I think I put it in the baffle piece, too. It seems like a lot of these guys are just kind of itching for it. Yeah. Like, it's, they're ready to go. And I, I think the, the leadership, understandably, is wary of it. But at the same time, sometimes, you know. Sometimes you got to throw the first punch. That's it. I think that's an excellent place to leave it. Uh, I, I, you know, final, final words on my end, I would say that uh, we're talking about a particular industry and a particular group of trades that is thankfully still unionized in this country. We're talking about a group of people, often white, but not always, uh, who work really hard, who do hard work and get paid decent money, but are also getting stomped on like so many other working people in this country. So I think that ultimately what we need to do, all of us, is collapse our particular struggles, you know, in the building trades into a larger working class movement. I don't know what that's going to look like, right? But I think that there is a possibility to break down, you know, this this artificial barrier of sector and sector of uh, white and black, of immigrant and non-immigrant. And if we're going to have a socialist movement in this country, that has to start happening. We have to start seeing that coming from our own ranks. So if you're a young kid out there, if you're you know, a man or a woman, you, you're out of high school, you don't know what to do with yourself, you don't w- want to go to college, we need you in the building trades. Come in. Let's make our trades red. Okay, Let's make our unions red. Uh, you'll make a good buck, and at the same time, you'll join a, a larger struggle, you know, a struggle that's bigger than yourself. So uh, if, you have, if you are interested in this and you're looking to get into the building trades, you can email me, uh, Sean, at antifadamindset at gmail.com. And I've done this before for listeners. I would be happy to uh, help you along with that process. So with that, um, final words, uh, Billy, do uh, you want to leave anybody with uh, some choice words? Yeah. You want to talk about joining or forming a union where you work. You know, that worker next to you is going to be much more helpful to you than any prince or pope or president that might come down the pike. You know, even somebody as nice as uh, Bernie Sanders, who I think is going to, well, not perform miracles, but I, I'm almost sure he's going to try to get the boot off the union's necks. Yep. That's really all I need. I don't, I don't need him to save me. I got the other convicted murderers and everyone I work with. I don't need help forming a union or keeping a union strong. But when every law is tailored to defeat me at every turn, it's just not much I can do. So, but back to what I said, that worker next to you is going to be much more help to you than anyone else. Just talk to them about a union if you don't have one. Just talk about it. Hell yeah. John? Uh, If you work at Walmart, if you work designing video games you deserve a union even if you don't think it applies um and if you've ever wanted to tell your boss to his or her face to go fuck themselves (laughs) and not worry about getting fired that's why you join the union it's the best fucking feeling you will ever have 
This government had an idea And Parliament made it law Seems like it's illegal To fight for the union anymore And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Set off to join the picket lines, but together we cannot fail. We got stopped by police at the county line. They said, Go on, boys, or you'll go into jail. And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Well, it's hard to explain to a crying child why her daddy won't go back. Said the family suffer, but it hurts me more to hear a scab say, Sod you, Jack. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? To follow my conscience And I'll do whatever I can And it'll take much more Than a union law To knock the fight Out of a working man And which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on?